0: Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We thank you that you preserved it for us, for all of these millennia, that we may be transformed by it. We ask that you open our eyes to your word, and we ask that you challenge us by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Last time we ended with chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, and there we saw, we almost finished the chapter, and there we saw that God revealed to Samuel that he had chosen Saul to be the first king of Israel. God chose Saul, even though Saul did not fit God's design for the king of Israel, Saul fit the people's design for the king of Israel. So maybe the way we can say it is Saul was God's choice for the people's king. God chose Saul even though Saul didn't fit the design that God had for the for the king of Israel. That's a Deuteronomy 17 design. Saul fit the people's design for a king who had a worldview like the people, for a king who thought like the people who lived by sight and not by faith. They wanted a king who would reflect the way they thought. And so they wanted a king who was flashy. They wanted a king who was impressive. They wanted a king who they could say, Wow, this guy's impressive. Because they thought by sight, not by faith. And they wanted a leader who reflected the way they thought. This is kind of the context. This is just by way of review. And so in chapter 9, we saw God moving events to bring Saul into the kingship. Saul is from Gibeah, which is within the tribal allotment of Benjamin. Saul is a Benjamite, which is one of the first ways that you know Saul's the wrong man for the job. Because, as we've studied, the kingly line comes through Judah, Genesis 49, verse 10 and so we know right up front that Saul doesn't fit God's design for a king of Israel, yet God will select and choose Saul because God is giving the people what they want and this is an act of judgment by God, giving the people what they're clamoring for. So Saul is from Gibeah in the tribal allotment, tribal allotment of Benjamin. Saul's father in 1 Samuel Chapter 9, sent him and a servant to search for some lost donkeys. Donkeys are valuable. They're a valuable livestock. And after a few days of searching, they can't find it. So Saul says, let's go home. Let's shut it down. We can't find the donkeys. It's the servant who says, well, let's go see the seer. Because maybe the seer, whose name is Samuel, can see that which we cannot see. Maybe he can see where the donkeys are. Because remember, seer is another name for prophet. And so Saul follows the counsel of his servant, and they make their way to Ramah. Ramah is only about five miles north of where Saul is from in Gibeah. And Saul literally walks right into Samuel. And Saul says, will you show me who the seer is? And Samuel says, I'm the seer, because God is a God of absolute control. His sovereignty means he is in complete control. He moved the donkeys to be lost. He moved the donkeys so it's difficult for Saul and the, and the servant to find the donkeys. He moved it so that it was this particular servant who would be with Saul at this time. And that servant will say, well, hey, why don't we go see the seer, who's Samuel? As opposed to some other servant who might have said to Saul, yeah, you're right, let's quit. Let's go home because we can't find the donkeys. And so now God moves Saul literally face-to-face with Samuel because God is moving events so that Saul will be the next king, the first king of Israel. We also saw that Samuel took Saul to the high place, the high place there at Ramah. This is in a time of Israel where worship, where God allows them to worship in locations other than where the tabernacle was, we saw in the in the Mosaic law that they were to worship in the spot that God would designate, which was first where the tabernacle was at Ramah, the home of the hometown of Samuel, and then ultimately that would be, it would be the place of worship would be in Jerusalem, where the temple was that Solomon built. But during this interim period, where it's not clear where the tabernacle is, Ramah has been. Uh, destroyed by excuse me Shiloh the tabernacle was at Shiloh I didn't mean to say Rama the tabernacle was at Shiloh the Philistines destroyed Shiloh and from 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 that instant they took the the Philistines took the ark it made its way through the Philistine lands God cursed the Philistines they said get that thing out of here cuz the curses were so bad and ugly and so then the ark makes its, makes its way to Kiriath Jearim, where it stays for decades. But because this time period, you've got this interim time period where there is no centralized formal place of worship, either at Shiloh or in Jerusalem, God allows them to worship in the high places. High places would be at a hill, at a mountain, where they would build an altar and some place of worship. So Samuel takes Saul up to the high place at Ramah, where Saul would worship on behalf of the people and with the people. There they offer a sacrifice where where Samuel would worship. He brings Saul with him. They worship together. Samuel uh, offers a sacrifice, and Samuel seats Saul at the place of honor, gives him the choice piece of meat, and what this was doing there for everybody who was at that location, at the high place, it was communicating, this is a guest of honor. Saul is not just a regular Joe. Saul is someone very special because Samuel is treating him very different than the other people who are there. After the meal, we see these events in verse 25 of chapter 9 of 1 Samuel. When they came down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the roof. This is probably the roof of Samuel's house. Apparently, Samuel invited Saul and the servant to spend the night at his house that evening. Remember, the Middle East is a culture of hospitality, very, very serious hospitality. That way then, that way now. You invite someone into your house, and you defend them with your life, and uh, and not showing hospitality to, to someone is a great offense in that uh, area of the world. It was back they, back. It was that way back with Samuel and it's that way even today and so here is an image of what an old an- ancient Israelite home would look like you know it's not like uh, a house that you would see in Beverly Hills right this is a kind of a a, a square ish or, or even rectangular type structure Entrance is here at the at the the on the first floor you have the cattle where it's you know it's the livestock it's it, doesn't smell that nice, um, and, you know, that's, that, that's where the livestock is, is held. Then on the second floor, you have the dwelling, and you have different living spaces, and on the top of the structure, you have the roof, and, you know, maybe you, make, you get access to the roof through a ladder or some other way. The roof is, is, a, is a place usually of relative, especially in the cool of the day, relative comfort, even in the evening, because it's not uh, kind of muggy and, and stuffy like a, a, the inside of the structure would be. So Samuel has a private conversation with Saul on the roof, as we see here in verse 25, and we assume that Samuel is preparing Saul for what's coming. Then keep reading in verse 26, And they arose early, and at daybreak Samuel called to Saul on the roof, saying, Get up, that I may send you away. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Say to the servant that he might go ahead of us and pass on, but you remain standing now that I may proclaim the word of God to you. Here Samuel tells Saul to send his servant on because there, there's going to be a private ceremony that Samuel is going to conduct with Saul There will be a public coronation later this evening. But right now, this is all private. This is just between Samuel and Saul. Keep reading in chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him, and said, Has not Yahweh anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? This is a very, very, very important event that is described for us in the first verse of this chapter. Anointing someone with oil as Samuel is doing, is a solemn ritual. It symbolized God setting someone apart or something apart for the service of God. David recognized how awesome this ritual was. And when I use the word awesome, I don't use it the way we use it. Right? You know, you show up at, 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 um, at the fast food restaurant you get an extra fries. You say, awesome! I'm not using it that way. I mean wonder, and awe. David understood the awesome nature of the anointing of God that Samuel had done. He understood it as being called or appointed for service unto God. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 24. Just, you know, a few chapters later. Chapter 24 in 1 Samuel. The context of this passage is that Saul has been hunting David. He wants to get rid of David. He wants to kill him. And David has been evading Saul. And so now in chapter 24, you find a very unique situation that Saul finds himself in, and David himself. 1 Samuel 24 verse 1 reads like this. Now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took three thousand chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheep folds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. To be clear, he's going to the restroom in the cave. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. Ruh. This is a bad situation for Saul because he is in a most vulnerable vulnerable position, and inside the cave are the people that he's been hunting, including David himself. David has Saul in a very, very precarious spot. Verse 5, It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him, because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. David has the perfect Vantage point to be able to get rid of the person who's been hunting and persecuting him, but he doesn't do it He doesn't kill Saul and instead he just creeps up quietly while Saul is indisposed And he cuts off part of Saul's robe, but even this Bothers David's conscience Keep reading Verse six, so he David said to his men far be it from me because of Yahweh that I should do this thing to my Lord. My Lord there is Adonai, Saul. He's talking about Saul. Remember, when, when you see in the, in the text, in the Hebrew text, Adonai, it can mean God, because Adonai can mean God. It can mean Lord. It can mean ruler. It can mean, mean master. But in this case, you see it as lowercase because it's just referring to Saul. So he said to his men, far be it from me, Because of Yahweh, that I should do this thing to Saul. There's our phrase Yahweh's anointed. To stretch out my hand against him, since he is Yahweh's anointed. Here's what's fascinating David has already been anointed by Samuel to be the king. He was anointed earlier. So he's been anointed. Samuel anoints Saul. Then Saul becomes a disaster. Saul starts hunting David. David's anointed. Actually, David's already anointed before that. David's anointed by by Samuel as the next king because Samuel's art. I'm I'm kind of fast-forwarding ahead in in, in the book of 1 Samuel. Saul becomes a disaster. Saul disobeys. Samuel comes in and says, God is going to take the the kingdom from you and he's going to give it to another who is after the Lord's own heart. Samuel anoints David. Saul goes to hunt and kill David. David's already been anointed. David finds Saul in the cave in this precarious position. David knows he's been appointed by God to be the king, but he says, hands off. His conscience bothers him, even coming up and cutting a little square off of the robe of God's anointed because even that, you know, that's really a sign saying, I had you. Just so you know, I had you, but I let you go. Even that act, David understands as something that he should not have done because David knew that only God has the authority to remove the one that God has appointed. And he knows that it is a show of disrespect to disrespect the one who God had put into the position of authority. The word for anointed Whether it's here in chapter 24 or in our passage in chapter 10, is the Hebrew word masha, which means to anoint or to smear, like you smear oil on someone. Israel had been performing this ritual, this mashaing, this anointing, for roughly 400 years since the Exodus. But until this time, they had only anointed priests or special sacred objects. Please flip over in your Bible to Exodus 30. I want you to see the the institution where God instituted this ritual, this solemn ritual of anointing. Exodus 30, verse 22. Here we see the first occasion in the Scripture where God gives instruction to anoint, and what it looks like, and what is being anointed, who are being anointed. Exodus 30. Verse 22 reads like this. Moreover, Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Take also for yourself the finest of spices, of flowing myrrh, 500 shekels, and a fragrant cinnamon, half as much, 250, and a fragrant cane, 250, and of cassia, 500, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and of olive oil, a hin. You shall make of these a holy anointing oil. So God gives the, the recipe. He gives the formula. This amount of this, and that amount of that, and that amount of that, and that amount of that. And you put it all together, Moses, and you're going to have an, an, an oil, an anointing oil. Verse 25, you shall make of these a holy anointing oil, a perfume mixture, the work of a perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the ark of the testimony, the ark of the covenant. And the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering and its utensils and the laver and its stand. You shall also consecrate them. Consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them shall be holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister as priests to me. What's happening in this first establishment of the anointing, of the mashah, the smearing, if you prefer, the pouring of oil. What's happening is that the tabernacle and its sacred objects were set apart. That's what holy means. It means set apart. They were set apart to God. The tabernacle would be different than all the other tents Remember, they're in the wilderness, and they're not living in houses like that screen I showed you a moment ago. They're living in tents. They're tents as far as they can see, but the tabernacle is set apart from all the other tents. It's smeared. It's been smeared by oil, smeared and anointed. The utensils, the Ark of the Covenant, they're all set apart to God. The priests were set apart to God. They're different than all the other men in the camp of Israel. And so the verb is to masha, to anoint. The noun for the thing or the one who is anointed is the noun Mashiach. So the tabernacle was a Mashiach. The priest was a Mashiach. The Ark of the Covenant was a Mashiach. We take our, the Hebrew word Mashiach and we translate it and we get the English word Messiah. Now we would use that word in lowercase right because all the Mashias and all the the mashiach, all of all of the the designated holy things that had been anointed they were all pointing to the mashiach in all caps they they were all pointing to that person who was designated for the ultimate service Unto God and unto God's people. The Ark of the Covenant, the Tabernacle, the priests all designated for service to God and to God's people. But they are nothing in comparison to the One, the Christ, who is the ultimate One who is anointed. That's what Christ means. The anointed One. The chosen One. The designated One. The One who is chosen by God. This is all kind of baked into this concept of anointing. It's a very, very important concept in the Scripture, and it's really embodied in the person of Christ himself. Samuel anoints, he pours oil on the head of Saul, and he kisses him. He kisses him on the cheek. This is a customary greeting, a customary an- uh, action, even today in the Middle East. In this case, it's an act of respect by Samuel. You also see in verse 1 of chapter 10 that Saul was anointed ruler over Yahweh's inheritance. In other words, over, Yah- over, over Israel. That's Yahweh's inheritance. This is the third time that we've seen this formula or similar, similar formula. We saw in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 16, where God says to Samuel, About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince of... Over my people, Israel. Chapter 9, verse 17. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. Or our verse. Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? Which is either the people, Israel, or the land, Israel, or both. As one of you uh, noticed, and, and we talked about after the last message, one of you astutely noticed, there's something wrong with the formula. There's something missing in the formula for the king of Israel. Look at the formula. What is wrong with the formula that's repeated each time? There's something missing. It's the Hebrew word melech, king. How come God didn't call him a king? How come God doesn't say, in verse 16, the king over my people? Or in verse 17, he will rule. He doesn't say reign. Okay, so, so, so there, the, the noun is melech, technically, melech. It's kind of flummy, you know, when you say it. A little more detailed than you want it. But um, there's melech, king, and what a melech does is he malach. He reigns. He doesn't rule. He reigns. But in verse 17, God uses the term rule, not reign. And that Hebrew term means to govern or even to restrain. And then in verse 1 of chapter 10, we see this word that is for a ruler, but not for a king. God's not using the word king for the first king of Israel. He's not even anointed using the word king here in verse 1. It's true that he will be called king later. But what we're seeing up front in this description of Saul is that Saul does not fit God's design for the king of Israel, although he is anointed to be the king of Israel. In judgment, God is giving the people what they want, which is sometimes one of the worst judgments that God gives us to grant to us our sinful appetite. Because the people have been crying out for a king because they want to be, to use the phrase that they used with Saul in chapter 7, they want to be like all the other nations. They don't want to be distinct, the distinct people of God. They want a king like all the nations. And so in this formula, the phrase my people or my inheritance is emphasizing God's authority, God's sovereignty. The people think that they are in control. They think that they've gotten God to give them what they want. They think that they are controlling God, but it's God who's judging them by giving them what they want. That's true. But this is an act of judgment, as we'll see as these events unfold. Now Samuel is about to give three signs to Saul, three signs to validate the anointing that he's just done, to, to validate the selection that he is represented in the anointing process of pouring oil. Look at verse 2 of chapter 10. This is the first of the signs. When you go from me today, then you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, The donkeys which you went to look for have been found. Now behold, your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys and is anxious for you, saying, What shall I do about my son? This is the reason why Saul made his way to Samuel in the first place, is because, as I mentioned earlier, he was looking for donkeys. Now we have two strangers who will walk up and say, Saul, the donkeys you were looking for, they've been located. God made the donkeys lost, and God makes the donkeys found, because God's in complete control. This is a sign of God's Sovereignty, the first of the signs. Sign number two is in verse three. Then you will go on further, Samuel says, from there and you will come as far as the oak of Tabar and there three men going up to God at Bethel. Excuse me, there three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread and another carrying a jug of wine and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread which you will accept from their hand these are worshipers Worshippers going up to bethel you know you have these different names of towns in israel and whenever they start with beth it means house like bethlehem house of bread beth el is house of god el is a is a short name of god yahweh elohim el is short for elohim So Bethel means the house of God. These are worshipers that are going up to worship at Bethel, the town of Bethel. Maybe there was a high place at Bethel as well. They're going to offer sacrifices there. And what's happening is that God is saying, these worshipers that are coming to worship me, that are coming to offer to me, I'm going to take their offering that they were going to give to me, like the bread, and I'm going to have them give it to you. This is a huge, impressive thing that God is communicating to Saul that Saul is God's anointed and that Saul has been appointed by God to do that which God has designed to rule. Does God know that Saul is going to be a disaster? Absolutely. Does Saul not fit God's plan for a king? He doesn't. But the sovereignty of God and the free will of man coexist. And so... God is anointing Saul and has appointed Saul to serve as the first king of Israel. And God, of course, knows that Saul is going to be a failure, but Saul is going to be a disaster not because God makes him a disaster. Saul is going to be a disaster because he chooses to live by sight and not by faith. What God is communicating here through Samuel is that the second of these signs is a sign, again, of God's sovereignty where he brings these people along, these worshipers along, and they use the offerings that they would have offered to God and they use it to provide for God's anointed. Look at the third sign. You see it in verse 5. Afterward, you will come to the hill of God where the, the Philistine garrison is, and it shall be as soon as you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and a lyre before them. And they will be prophesying. The hill of God is Gebiath ha-Elohim. Probably this is Gibeah, where Saul is from. And there's a high place there that, that, that we've already well, actually, we haven't been introduced to that high place before. We were hi- introduced to the high place at Rama, But it, it appears that there's a, a place of worship, a high place at Gibeah as well. And this is where the, these prophets are coming down. They're, they're, they were at the high place on a hill or on a mountain, wherever it was. They're coming down with these musical inf- instruments. And what's interesting is there's a Philistine garrison here in the heart of Israel right? Gibeah is here. Here's Gibeah. Ramah's about five miles north. Jerusalem's three miles or so south. They're all kind of in a row. We saw these last time. And these are the Philistine cities. Gath, Ekron, Ashdod, Gaza's over here. But the Philistines have have a garrison stationed in Gibeah, in the heart of Israel, deep in the heart of Israel, over here in Gibeah. This shows how widespread the Philistine influence was You station a garrison like the Romans would station a garrison at Capernaum because you want to control it. So even in the middle of Israel, the Philistines have their troops stationed there, and this is a source of great concern for Israel. God is going to use Saul to disrupt the Philistines, as we saw last time, but it will ultimately be David who permanently defeats them. What I want to focus on for a minute here is the phrase in verse 5 that Samuel uses, a group of prophets. This is the first time we've seen this in, 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 in the Bible. This is the first time it shows up in the Bible is this concept of a group of prophets. Remember, Samuel is judge, priest, and prophet. He's the last of the judges. His father was a Levite, which makes him a, Levit- uh, a Levitical priest as well. And he's also A prophet, a prophet, functions as a mouthpiece or a spokesman for God. Samuel is the first to have the office of prophet. I mean, there were people before, like Moses or Abraham, who functioned as prophets at times, but it's Samuel. It is Samuel who was the first who actually holds the office of prophet. And so here we see not just Samuel, but a group of prophets. Later on in chapter 19, Samuel will lead a school or a band of prophets. And it may be that Samuel is the one who actually established it. Elijah, Elisha will also lead a, a school of prophets. But here we have Samuel referring to this group or band of prophets. This may be the early stage, stages of that group that we'll later see in chapter 19. Keep reading in verse 6 of chapter 10 then the spirit of yahweh will come upon you mightily this is samuel still talking to saul and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man there's a debate among theologians whether saul was a believer or an unbeliever i think saul was a believer and part of the reason i make that argument is because of this verse and a verse that we will or a couple of verses that we will see in chapter 15 that I think make a strong argument for Saul being a believer, following the 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 the, the pattern of faith of Father Abraham, Genesis fifteen six. Abram believed in the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. But what we're seeing in verse six is God empowering Saul to do the task, as I said a few moments ago. God doesn't appoint Saul. He doesn't anoint Saul and say, you're toast, you're done. I'm anointing you and I'm going to destroy you. It doesn't work that way. God is a God of grace. He anoints Saul knowing that Saul will be a disaster, but Saul becomes a disaster because of Saul's decisions, not God's decisions. Here we see God empowering, empowering Saul by the indwelling of the Spirit, the Temporary indwelling of the Spirit. We've, we've studied this before. we studied this in the book of Judges. That in the Old Testament, it's the endowment of the Spirit. Endowment means empowerment. And so in the Old Testament, there are temporary empowerments of the Spirit. Like where God empowered the, the, the craftsman who built the tabernacle or the Ark of the Covenant. Or God empowered Samson to have supernatural strength to to wage war against the Philistines. But then he would remove the Spirit. And so when David gets involved in that sin with Bathsheba, he prays, take not your Holy Spirit from me, because God will take the Holy Spirit from Saul, because of Saul's sin. David comes along and says, I've sinned with Bathsheba. Please, God, don't take your Spirit from me. Sadly, we take the filling of the Spirit as just kind of, ah, boring, because we're accustomed to it because we've seen it in the Scriptures and we don't take it seriously. David took it seriously because David will pray, please, Father, don't... Please, Yahweh, don't take your Spirit from me. This is a temporary endowment of the Spirit because God is empowering Saul to do the task, the difficult task of ruling. This is the same thing that God did with many of the judges. What we're seeing with this third sign for Saul is that the Spirit will come upon him, will transform him, and Saul will prophesy along with other prophets. Keep reading in verse 7. It shall be when these signs come to you, these three signs, the men who show up, sign number one, and and tell you that the donkeys have been found, the worshipers on their way to Bethel and give you bread, and this sign number two where the Spirit will come upon you and you will prophesy, It shall be when these signs come to you, verse 7, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. This seven-day period will come into play in chapter 13, and there Saul will disobey Samuel and there will be serious consequences for his disobedience. Keep reading verse 10, excuse me, verse 9. Then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel. God changed his heart, and all those signs came about on that day. When they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, so that he prophesied among them. Now we have all three of the signs coming about validating Samuel's Anointing of Saul, validating this special, solemn, private procedure, ritual, because no one else was there. It was just Samuel and Saul with the anointing. It's going to be made public in a little bit. But now that anointing is validated by signs, by three signs, because one of the many things you have to love about God is God provides evidence. As we saw Sunday morning, never believe that bogus argument from the skeptics that we're called to blind faith. That is absolute hogwash. You're not called to blind faith. God is a loving God, and God says, let me give you the evidence, and you either accept the evidence or you reject the evidence. But God always gives evidence. So here... He gives us evidence of Christ here in our era. And here he gives evidence to Saul so that Saul knows when Samuel walks up and pours the oil and says, you're anointed, Saul could say, well, how do I know? Here are the three signs that validate that Samuel was, in fact, acting as the agent of God. Keep reading verse 11. It came about when all who knew him previously, all who knew Saul, Previously Saul that he prophesied now with the prophets that the people said to one another, "What has happened to the son of kish remember that's that's his dad is saul among also among the prophets? People were surprised to see Saul prophesying speaking the things of God i don 't think they're they're you know as as some in Christianity would say they 're kind of you know rolling around on the floor, wailing and making a bunch of noise and waving their hands and doing some sort of ecstatic mojo experience. I don't think that's going on at all. I think the prophets are standing there proclaiming things about God that are spectacular. And Saul, a regular Joe, gets into the crowd, the band of prophets, and he does the same thing that the other prophets do. This is what causes the people to be stunned. That's Saul. Who's there among the prophets? It's not that he's a prophet, but he's prophesying as the prophets do. This is, this is something that is bewildering to the people. Look at the language of verse 12. A man there said, Now who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? Remember in biblical times, the, the someone would say, He's the father of him. Or you'd use the the, the term father to mean source or to mean origin. I think this verse is reflecting how stunned the people are because the people knew that the prophets got their power from God, but Saul, who was not a prophet, is doing what the prophets do. And so this proverb, is Saul a prophet? The answer is no, he's not a prophet. He's a king. They don't know that yet. They don't know that he's even been anointed as king. They just know that this is a regular Joe, Saul, and he's in this band of prophets who is doing the thing that the prophets do. And so this is a statement of bewilderment and, and, and what's happening here kind of statement. They don't understand because it hasn't been revealed to them yet the calling that God has for Saul. Keep reading in verse 13. When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. That's Saul. Came to the high place. Now Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To look for the donkeys. When we saw that they could not be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. So Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But he, Saul, did not tell him about the matter of the kingdom which Samuel had mentioned. Saul goes home to Gibeah, sees his uncle, sees his family, says, I met with Samuel. Samuel found the donkeys. Samuel told told us that the donkeys were found. That's it. Let's go talk about the Astros. Let's go talk about the weather. Saul doesn't mention the most important thing he's heard, that he's going to be the first king ever of Israel. Mum's the word. He didn't mention that at all. I think this may be a statement of Paul's, of Saul's humility because I think he was a, hum, a, a humble man and we should give praise where praise is due. What's going to happen here is he starts with these characteristics and you say, this is going to be a great reign. Saul's going to be a great king. He's a humble man. In a little bit, you're going to see that he's a wise man. But you can only last so long living by sight as opposed to living by faith. At some point, something comes in your life and it whacks you in the face. And then you start going to think, to think, to think, to think the wrong direction because you keep making decisions based on sight as opposed to based on faith. And that's what Saul's going to do. Step. By step by step. And before he knows it, he's going to be a complete disaster. But here he begins with humility. I think it's fair to say that this is humility. Now comes, in the next passages, in the next, in the next few verses, this great coronation, the public coronation. Look at verse 17. Therefore, therefore Samuel called the people together to Yahweh at Mitzpah. This is the second time that Samuel has summoned the people at Mitzpah. You remember the first time was back in chapter 7. And in chapter 7, they called on the Lord to deliver them from the Philistines. They were in a pickle. right, They're fearful of the Philistines. The Philistines are a constant threat for the Israelites during this era. And so back in chapter 7, they, Samuel calls them to Mitzpah. They recognize that they need the Lord and so they fast. They confess their sin before God. They ask Samuel to pray for them that God would deliver them from the Philistines and sure enough, God gives them a great victory over the Philistines. But that was that generation. This generation, eh, whatever. They're just not that interested in God and so this summoning Samuel's summoning of the people to Mitzbah this second time is a very different occasion. Look at verse 18. And he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you have today rejected your God, who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses. Yet you have said no, but set a king over us. Here God reminds the people that he has always been their true source of security and stability. Not their leaders, not their armies, not their wealth, but it's been God and God alone. God uses his name to remind the people of his sovereignty. That's why he says, Yahweh, the God of Israel. That's my name. Remember, he gave the name Yahweh back in Exodus 3 to Moses, and he said, this is my name for all generations. Yahweh, it, it comes from the Hebrew verb hayah, which it means to be. Yahweh describes the eternality, the beingness, the foreverness of God. And so he says, Yahweh, the God of Israel, your God. God delivered Israel from the Egyptians. That's why he mentions the Egyptians here. He's reminding them, the Egyptians who enslaved them, the gods of Egypt didn't deliver them from Israel. That's why God sent the plagues. Remember the plagues of the frogs and the blood in the water and all these plagues? Well, those plagues represented the gods of Israel. And God was saying, I'm above the gods of Israel. Those are no gods. I'm the only true God the God, of the, the God of the Egyptians, I meant to say. The God of the Egyptians, the gods of the Egyptians with their frogs and, and all of their other uh, gods that they had were false gods. And so the God of Israel, Yahweh, was saying to the Israelites when he sent all the plagues through Moses, I'm the true God. Your gods are the gods of the Egyptians. They're not going to deliver you. I'm going to make Pharaoh allow you to leave the former slaves of Egypt. God delivered Israel from the various kingdoms that had attacked them. That's why he references kingdoms here the Amalekites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Moabites, all the differentites. He delivers them, not the gods of those various peoples. Look at the phrase today, but today you have rejected your God. This is a damning, indicting phrase for the Israelites. In chapter 7, they accepted Yahweh as their deliverer the first time they were at Mitzbah, as their deliverer from the Philistines. But now they want a new deliverer, lowercase d, a new deliverer, a king like all the nations. Keep reading in verse 19. Now therefore, present yourselves before Yahweh by your tribes and by your clans. Samuel has them assembled by tribes and clans. Remember the the first designation is tribe. Then within a tribe, you've got the clans. And then within the clans, you've got the, the individual families. And so Samuel has them uh, assembled based on clan and based on tribe. And what's going to happen is he's going to use this assembly to display the supernatural sovereignty of God, to display that God is in absolute control and that God has, in fact, by his sovereignty, selected Saul as the king. No one knows in the assembly about the secret anointing that's already happened. Because no one was there. Saul told Samuel told Saul to send off a servant. No one knows. And Saul hasn't told anybody because mum's been the word for him. He doesn't want to tell anybody. Because he really doesn't want to serve. He really doesn't want to serve God and God's people. We'll see that in a moment. No one in the assembly knows. And so what God does is he creates through his servant Samuel. He creates a ceremony for the benefit of the nation so that they will see that Saul is in fact chosen by God. God does something supernatural in this assembly through the casting of lots. Keep reading in verse 20. Thus Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken By Lot, verse 21. Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families, and the Matrite family was taken, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he could not be found. Lots are kind of like, as we studied in the book of Jonah, kind of like modern dice that you would kind of cast as you would uh, a a couple, couple of pieces of dice. Sometimes God allowed the Israelites to cast lots to determine his will. Like on the Day of Atonement, in Leviticus 16, the high priest was to cast lots to determine which goat is going to be sacrificed and which is the scapegoat that will run off into the mountain, into the mountains, carrying, symbolizing the, the sins of the people being being, sent off. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the day, of, the day of Forgiveness of the Sins of the People. Well, in Leviticus 16, God told the high priest they would cast lots to determine which goat goat would be slaughtered and which goat would be sent off in the mountains. Or the Urim and the thermim; Those were small objects similar to lots that were kept inside the breastplate of the high priest. We don't know exactly how they were used other than they were, they were used in a way similar to lots to, to get answers from God. Now, church age believers should not be doing this. Church-age believers should not be casting lots. Don't go, don't, I'm going to Vegas because in Vegas I'm going to cast some dice and that way I can tell what the will of God is. You can go to Vegas, just don't sin in Vegas. Nothing wrong with Vegas. Just don't sin when you go to Vegas. But casting lots is not what we should be doing today. We don't determine the will of God by casting lots. We have the completed canon of Scripture, the full revelation of God. All we need to know in this age we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit we have the filling of the Holy Spirit when we're walking in fellowship with God which is to say we've confessed our sins we're in fact priests we are part of the royal priesthood of God we don't need a middle man a middle woman in some denominations to be the priest you don't need that you're you have immediate access to God Because you're your own priest. So we we don't cast lots the way they did back then. What's happening in our passage is that God is sovereignly moving the lots so that the tribe of Benjamin is selected. And then so that the clan of Matri is selected. And then so that the family of Kish is selected. And then so that Samuel himself is selected, but Samuel's nowhere to be found. Samuel is gone but what god is doing is he is exercising his sovereignty because even the lots roll the way god moves them to roll we know that from proverbs six thirty three, where we read the lot is cast into the lap you know they would they would open up their they have a tunic and they'd open up their tunic and they they'd, they'd throw the, the the lot into this kind of open area of the tunic and so in in Proverbs 6:33 the lot is cast in the lap but it's every decision is from Yahweh. Yahweh is moving the lots supernaturally so that they make their way to point to none other than Samuel because in his judgment of the people God is going to give them a king who fits perfectly their design for a king, the type of king that they want. Keep reading in verse 22. Therefore they inquired further of Yahweh, Has the man come here yet? Where's Saul? So Yahweh said, Behold, he is hiding himself by the baggage. This is not a good look for the king. To be be hiding behind the equipment. Soon a king will be, or in the not too distant future, a a new king will be coronated in England. And can you imagine the king hiding somewhere in the back Behind everything. And people say, where's the king to be coordinated?" And someone finds him cowering in the back. It's not a good look. But that's where this king is found. That's what God has to reveal to Samuel where this king is. It's true that at least initially Saul begins in, humil- in humility. But I think really what this text is revealing is that it's giving us a contrast It's giving us a contrast between Saul and David. Saul is reluctant and hesitant to serve God and to serve God's people, unlike David right? Chapter 17, the teenager walks up and he sees the armies of God quaking in their boots and he sees the giant down there in the valley taunting the the, the armies of Israel. And the little teenager looks around and he sees the armies of Israel and he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who taunts the armies of the living God? In other words, bring it on. Let me at him. Now, he's going to do it in the power of God, in the will of God, in the strength of God, but little David can't wait to serve God and serve God's people. Saul, he's cowering, hiding behind the luggage. No one knows where he is, even though he's already been anointed the first king of Israel. That's what we're getting. We're getting a contrast, a stark contrast between the king who will be a false start, not a false start by God, but a false start by the people because, because the people don't want a Deuteronomy 17 king, a king that fits God's design for a king. They want a king who's impressive, who's tall, who's handsome, who looks good. Because that's the kind of king that we can relate to. They don't want a king who's obedient to God. That's irrelevant. They don't want a king who's interested in God's ways. That's that's lame. We want a king that we can see his power, his strength, his Impressiveness. Look at verse 23. So they ran and took him from there. They have to drag him. So they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom Yahweh has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. This is the coronation of King Saul. This is the public ceremony of King Saul. And Samuel's words are dripping with irony. Dripping full of irony. Here's the king you wanted. He fits the build perfectly. He's tall. He's handsome. He's very impressive. He fits your pattern for a king, people, perfectly perfectly. Here's what happens. Rejection of God produces absurd results in the mind of the people of God for them and for us. On the one hand, the people were willing to trust God to give them a king like all the nations. They call to Samuel to ask God, give us a king like all the nations. So they trust God for that. But then they don't trust God to be the one who delivers them, to use the language in verse 18, from calamities and from distresses. They don't trust God to give them a king that fits God's pattern, a Deuteronomy 17 king. They trust God to give them a king that fits their pattern, a king like all the nations. You see the inconsistency, the, 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 the mental, logical fallacy in their thinking. This is what sin produces, what, what distrust of God produces in our minds. In judgment... God will give them what they want. And it will not end well. Hosea thirteen eleven, There God says, I gave you a king in my anger and I took him away in my wrath. Rejection of God never produces a happy ending. It always produces. It seems good in the moment. It seems like it makes sense in the moment. It seems logical in the moment. But it always produces a bad thing. And sometimes getting what you want is not the best thing. Sometimes getting what you want is actually judgment from God. Look at verse 25. So they ran and took him from there. Excuse me, verse 25. Then Saul told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in the book and placed it before Yahweh. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his house, the book is probably, the Hebrew word here for book is probably a scroll. And so what Samuel's probably doing is writing the parameters of how a king was to rule. He's writing it from Deuteronomy 17. Look at verse 26. Saul also went to his house at Gibeah, and the valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. Again, God supports Saul. God put his spirit into Saul. God coronates Saul, and now God raises up valiant men, whether you want to call them his, the secret service, the bodyguards, the, the, the cadre who will form an army, whatever you want to call it. These are valiant men that God moves. It says that God moved their hearts to support Saul because the disaster of Saul will not be of God's doing. It will be of Saul's doing by living by sight as opposed to by faith. Look at verse 27. But certain worthless men said, how can this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present. But he kept silent. So it was customary to bring a gift to the king. as the first king of Israel, but they know the customs of other kings. It would have been customary to bring a gift as, a, as, a, as a, an act of respect. But some... Didn't do that. They were disrespectful. And in fact, it calls them worthless. Literally, sons of Belial. We've seen that phrase before at the beginning of the book of First Samuel. The sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were described as sons of Belial. Belial, as we studied, came to be a name in the New Testament, a name for the devil himself. And so these men are called worthless, sons of Belial, because they don't bring a present to the, to the new king. They disrespect the king. By disrespecting the king, they're disrespecting the one who anointed him king. They're disrespecting God himself. This is a lesson for us. I mean, the lesson that we get of this same principle is Romans 13, that we are to honor our leaders as crummy as they may be. But we are to show respect to our leaders not because they're so great but because the God who put them in place is so great. We respect them because we respect God even though often they are terrible leaders. But God has put them in in place and by disrespecting them we disrespect the one God himself who put them in office. What we're seeing here is actually wisdom by Saul because he doesn't go after these guys who disrespect them. He exercises wisdom. He, it says he keeps silent at the end of verse 27. He, he was keeping silent. He showed wisdom and he doesn't, this is not the time to deal with people who are disrespectful and he just leaves it alone. What we see at the beginning of the reign of Saul is humility and wisdom and it makes you think that the reign will go well but it will not. What's missing in the text, what's conspicuously absent from the text, is any description about Saul having an interest in the Lord. I mean, so far, since we've been introduced to Saul, have we seen any statement that Saul's interested in the ways of God, that Saul's interested in the Word of God, that Saul's interested in even worship? You don't see that. Now, he prophesied. The Spirit came upon him. He... Follows the instruction of Samuel, mainly, except for hiding behind the the luggage. But you don't see any description of him following God, having a desire for God, unlike the next king who longs for God, who God describes as a man after my own heart. What a compliment from God himself. You don't see any of this with Saul because Saul is a man who lives by what he can see, not by the invisible God and the ways of the invisible God. So he fits the design of the people perfectly. And we'll see more about this next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Help us learn from the experience of Saul that we may be obedient to you and that we may live by faith in you, not merely by sight. We pray these things